Now listening to Lost Cast, the Lost Decade Games podcast. Welcome to Lost Cast, episode 146. I'm Matt Hackett. And I'm Jeff Blair. Going to talk more about A Wizard's Lizard 2. Making really good progress on it. Uh, I'm getting increasingly excited. I'm shocked that that is shocked. something we would talk about on this podcast. I can't believe it. Uh, right. We were just talking about like going through the... Uh, let's go through that git commit log. <laughs> no, we promise that's not going to happen. No, no, we're not. Uh, we learned our lesson from the last, you know, 50 or 100 episodes of... Uh, <laughs> we learned that we don't hate our listeners. <laughs> And shouldn't subject them to, I fixed a bug in the rendering pipeline. It took us a long time to realize we don't hate our listeners (laughs) (laughs) and to do something about it. (laughs) Sometimes I think that the sparingly change log can be, uh, can be interesting, but it's better to cherry pick. It's almost like writing patch notes, right? Like when I compile patch notes for like public consumption, Mm -hmm. I very rarely just take what's in Git. In fact, yes. I started maintaining like a separate change log for AWL1. Yeah. And so basically it's just an, a markdown file. And every time I make a change that I deem as like publicly important, yeah. I add a note to that change log file. And then when it's time to post patch notes, I just copy and paste that. And I don't actually have to like go through, you know, a massive list of Git changes that are, you know, sometimes minor and no one cares about. Yeah, it's good. You've got like kind of two lists going on, which is a little bit more work, but it's much better. You know, there's like the the git commit log itself, which there's no getting around it. It's lazy, right? <laughs> and it's inconsistent. Like some of these commits, uh, the logs are very helpful. You know, they tell you exactly what's going on, but a lot of them are like all undercase, like uh, typos. I don't know, fix some stuff. Shut up. Like <laughs> they're they're not useful and they're not necessarily very entertaining. So yeah, you almost need like a curated list. Like what are the some of the high level, more exciting stuff that's been going on, or like some of the harder problems where we learned something, you know? Right, or crazy bugs that people are going to be happy that are fixed. Yes. <laughs> uh, on that note, actually, you did something during this week that is really cool. So one of the biggest requests from the first game was you know players really want to know stuff about the objects before they buy them and a pretty good request there you know i mean like you walk up to a shop and you'll see like okay you know there's the ice axe i know that and here's item b you know like what is that (laughs) one of them looks like a leech like you're not gonna have any idea what that is one of them is a rock and we're calling it a heat rock but you didn't even have the name of the item before you had to buy it you know right. what I mean? Like you didn't get any information other than just the visual. And I guess you could also glean some information from the price. But a lot of that, honestly, was really arbitrary. It was. So, so not very useful there. And you added this kind of proximity detector. It's really cool. You walk up near a shop item, like within a tile or two, and then this little modal appears with this nice canvas-drawn little arrow that points at the item, tells you what it is, description uh, of what it does, and then also the price, and then um, how much mana it uses when you use it. Yeah, it's kind of like the idea is like Diablo or World of Warcraft item tooltips. Yeah. It's kind of where I drew inspiration from. Yeah, we're kind of leaning a little bit more towards uh, Diablo with this game. I think that... I I like it. And more more than that, I think we decided that we want to be a little bit more informative with the game world. Yes, for sure. Because I feel like in a game like this, there's already a lot of choices to make and having incomplete information makes those choices less interesting almost yeah it does uh and so i'm really looking forward to you know seeing people play the game and you know they walk into a shop and they're like "Ooh, what does this do you know yeah um we were also kind of toying with the idea of like item rarity or something just to give the player a little bit 
even more information. Like the developers are telling you here that this this is a really rare and, and probably good item. Yeah. So the first time I was exposed to that, I guess, was in Borderlands. So I think that was before I was playing World of Warcraft. But basically, it was like um, I think it even said this in the instruction booklet, where it was like blue items are common and you know purple is decent and orange is super good or whatever and it was like it didn't even go that granular it was more just like we use the common color scheme from games like world of warcraft and i'm like thanks because i didn't know (laughs) i i you know like that's not a convention you can necessarily guarantee you know like everyone who plays borderlands surely has played world of warcraft and is very familiar with it right yeah. No. Well, considering that WoW had like 12 million subscribers at some point in its heyday. Yeah, I mean, it's a decent convention. I just <laughs> yeah. think that it is it is the job of that developer to also educate you about what in the world is going on. It's not enough. You could be like, you know, you make a platform and you're like, it plays like Mario. Like, that's not enough for like an instruction booklet. <laughs> you can't just do that. But uh, we are kind of looking at that, you know, because the way it works, basically what I remember, you, you know, this, it's like, this is like in your blood, but it's like, you know, gray is crappy throwaway items blue is fancier and then like there's like orange and or purple right oh, which man. is like you epic items you don't even know i don't even know <laughs> what i what i just like waft over something right you did what do you got gray is basically useless white is common but nothing special green is uh uncommon and probably magical blue is rare and a lot more potent purple is epic and really good and orange is legendary and basically the best that you can get orange is pretty much unheard of right no uh, i would say unheard of i thought when we were talking about it last time it was like yeah there's like five players in the game who get to have these items in a given moment no well that was kind of originally uh how it started off they were pretty rare but now basically like through the last couple of expansions there's a quest that anyone can do that will give you a legendary item basically per x-pack so like in the midst of Pandaria expansion, there was a cape that everybody could get that was legendary. I see. You just had to do a really long quest line. They've been making everything more accessible in that game. They have. Uh, I think it's smart. Yeah. I, I think we may have touched on this in a previous episode, but like... Yes. Uh, they Originally, there was a red, a red class of items, too, that was... I think they were called artifact items. I don't remember that. And the artifact items were supposedly like one per server or something. Mm. This was something that never really made it into the game very proper because I think they realized really quickly that like having an item that only one person per server can get is kind of dumb. Well, I mean, you've got millions of players, right? It's like that 1% type thing. One of you can have a mansion, but only one. The rest of you can just shut up. Right. and be sad <laughs> like that's that's not fun that, that doesn't scale well right no it doesn't yeah that makes sense so we're kind of thinking about doing something along those lines although we already have a lot of meaningful colors going on yes right there's like there's red green and blue mana and we've already noticed like a conflict with the pricing so like when you walk into a shop in a wizard's lizard there will be prices with a little gold icon and then like you know the number in gold like you know three thousand gold right but if you can't afford it, then both the icon and the text are red to imply, you know, like disabled or you can't afford this, right? <clears throat> but that doesn't work anymore with AWL2 because red would mean red mana. Right. Like so we kind of expanded upon the resource system where in AWL1, you could basically only purchase stuff for gold. But now we've made it so that you can purchase items for almost any currency, um, you know, depending on the structure of the store. So, for example, yeah. like you could find a store that, you know, you trade gold for items, but you could also find a store where you trade 
one color of mana for another. And so you might see like a mana pickup and then the cost underneath it, like let's say it's a green pickup, the cost underneath would be like, you know, 10 red mana. And so you could trade 10 red mana for 10 green mana perhaps. Right. Um, and then we've also got lizard scales, which are kind of a special currency that special stores uh, stock items that cost lizard scales. Yeah, and we're kind of leaning towards like maybe that's the primary currency in the game, like the, um, you know, like a freemium equivalent, right? Like we're not going that route. Don't <laughs> don't panic, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> hardcore players. But along those same lines, like uh, actually Heroes of the Storm, the way it works is you've got like um, gold, which you get, and then you can obviously buy, you know, skins and characters with cash, like hard money, right? So there's al- almost always with like, these kinds of games there's like a soft currency and a hard currency this really uh, isn't like a hard currency though it's more no. like we're taking the idea of currency rarity right so you have one currency that's relatively abundant which is gold it's nothing special yeah. you can use it all over the place things usually cost you know multiple golds it's gold valuable points. but you get it like you get a pretty steady drip of gold right. and like the other resources like the red green blue mana you get those in abundance that's the hope, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then the scales are more like a... I guess premium currency is is the better term. Because it's not really like a primary currency, I would say. Right. It's but it's something... basically like, you know, scales are super valuable, right? Right. Where like you can do almost anything with scales. It's kind of like and... the Mithril in Shining Force 2. Yeah, there you go. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> something along those lines, yeah. But it's, uh, it's, it's pretty cool. I'm liking that setup. And the way we're looking at it is like... Um, tied to the death mechanic we want to keep that going from the first game into the second but we want to have it a little more baked a little more thought out so like in the first game you die and there you go you're a ghost now and there's more ghosts and you can revive yourself and there might be some areas you couldn't uh, get to before that now you can and in this game it's kind of like you die and now you're a ghost the world itself doesn't really change much but if nothing else you've harvested all these scales from your dead body which has this nice kind of grisly feel to it yeah it's kind of sick somehow you know like imagine you die and then you come up out of your corpse as a ghost and then you just start like <laughs> looting your body you take your wallet <laughs> you won't be needing this anymore <laughs> but it's a little more gruesome than that even poor stiff it's yes. like yeah if you were a ghost and then you hacked up your body pieces and traded them for you know currency or things in the black market like hey i'll give you this severed arm for this great trinket yeah like a like a ghost selling kidneys yeah it's kind of sick and that's uh that's what we kind of like actually because the game's kind of cute so we want to temper that with some some grisly ghoulishness yeah so yeah we're kind of playing with that right now and uh it's gonna be pretty cool like there's gonna be certain things you can only buy with scales and maybe some other ways you can get scales and whatnot but like the the clearest way is you know that you get it from dying right and the basic idea is that we want to fold the death mechanic more into like the resource management part of the game. Right. Um, with multiple currencies and stuff. That's really one of the things we've been expanding a lot on recently is the whole like economy of the game. Yeah. Um, which was really broken in AWL one because gold was basically the only currency. Yeah. But then we gave it to you as a starting bonus that just kept (laughs) stacking and stacking into the villagers. yeah. Yeah. Yep. At, at some point, the game does kind of break where, like, you know, if you play it enough, you will ha- be able to, like, afford anything anytime. It basically makes gold meaningless, right? right? Like, it's kind of a broken design in some ways. It's very rewarding early on, and it can feel good to collect villagers and whatnot. But we wanted to kind of dodge that problem right. altogether yeah. with the sequel. 
it's kind of one of those things that feels it, it kind of has like um a couple of bad sides one is that early on it actually feels like kind of grindy like mm-hmm. when you don't have any starting money or any starting items yeah you may you feel like you're hamstrung and that you're having to grind to like get some stuff but then you hit like basically the one sweet spot which is that you have some starting money and you have some items but not like every item you could possibly want yeah and stuff like that and then you get to the other side of the coin which is that you have all the money you could ever want you have access to all the items you need in the starting zone and uh and it just kind of trivializes gold drops when you get into the actual game right uh and weapon drops that matter so it's kind of like a (laughs) we like double screwed ourselves with that particular (laughs) design that's our company motto (laughs) yes we double screw ourselves so we uh, mentioned some of this stuff in the, the postmortem. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, we've talked about it previously, but you should definitely check it out because it kind of like summarizes a lot of the stuff we've been talking about for the last year or two-ish. Some good stuff in there. So along the lines of having all these resources and wanting to optimize them and have, like, they have various values, you know, like um, the scales are more valuable than gold and sometimes gold is more valuable than mana and that kind of a thing. Um, we knew it was going to be important to start iterating on the UI. So you did a lot of work on that. Uh, was that just yesterday? Uh, well, it's been kind of like a ongoing thing, but I did ongoing a bunch thing, of work yeah. on it yesterday. The tooltips, like you were talking about earlier, were part of it. Um, yeah. Like I said, we were kind of trending in the direction of giving the player more information about, especially the items in game, yeah. um, what they do and stuff. And like we had this system in AWL1 where I would try to like dynamically generate... Uh, item descriptions from like the properties on the item but oh yes no that's yeah <laughs> i think we like that because um and, you know we might talk about this a little bit too like visualizing the content in a game and especially like the data behind that content but uh we wanted to automate it so it'd be like you know oh it's iron sword it increases your attack cooldown increases your attack and is strong against ice or something like that and we kind of automated that but it was <clears throat> it was like imperfect and it was also kind of soulless, you yeah. know? And then uh, we also had this extra description we could put in there, I guess, for stuff like uh, the soul abilities, you know, like, oh, it shoots some projectiles out. I Something think, you can't really automate as easily. I think that I've completely turned around on that, though, and my yeah. new approach is just very simple. Like, there's just a hand carry description for every single item in the game. Yeah. And uh, it should be as accurate as possible. Like, you know, this item gives you 300% damage versus red monsters or something. Yeah, uh, I'm liking that. Yeah. The downside is that you kind of have now more than one bit of code to keep in sync. You know, because like, especially right now, there's a lot of, uh, it's a very tumultuous, you know, there's constantly things are getting tweaked and changed and whatnot. So it's like you go into a weapon and you're like, oh, you know, the homing bees need an attack cooldown a little bit or whatever. Like that may or may not be present in the description and if it is it needs updating as well you know and that can be something that's it's kind of hard to remember to do you know i think though that what we'll need to do is we'll just at certain milestones we'll just make a ticket to iterate over every item in the game and make sure that they're in sync yeah and like that shouldn't take i mean it might take a couple hours but if we do it at regular releases release cycles it shouldn't be too bad yeah it shouldn't be too bad and honestly like the worst case scenario is that hey the tooltip for this particular item is out of date and so you know we'll just file a bug and get it fixed right so i mean the downsides it, it is double entry sort of but the downsides are pretty uh pretty weak yeah so kind of on that note we've uh we made this spreadsheet to visualize the content we have in the game and it's got several sheets actually there's there's one for we're calling it mobs so it's like monsters and stuff like traps 
Um, we have wands, which are your primary weapon. We have books, which is kind of your kind of off by one uh, occasional weapon. And then we have trinkets, which are just like your power-ups. So like, you know, your compass, passive your buffs. passive buffs, yeah, stuff like that. And we first were talking about maybe going in and visualizing this stuff in game. So we could make like a list or some kind of scrollable thing that shows the icon and some of the stats. And like if it's in game, we can look at the real actual numbers and do math on it and make it all good, you know. But <clears throat> the downside is it's a lot more work. You know, like you were saying that like, you know, I can whip, whip up a spreadsheet in like, you know, two minutes, right? Whereas like working that stuff into the game and making it nice and non-painful to look at, <laughs> You know, and putting it into a list and stuff like that's all non-trivial. That would probably take a day or two at least to just tie everything together. And even then it would be pretty imperfect. Right. So, I mean, there's pros and there's cons, right? Because like the pro of having it in game is that it would be actual game data. But the downside is that, you know, you don't have all this niceties of, you know, Google spreadsheets. You can sort by column, you can copy paste, move stuff around, and you could just have like these kind of... Uh, arbitrary text fields where you can make notes and you can colorize stuff and yada 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 you know like uh, it's like prepared for that you know it's ready for data yeah and you can easily you know calculate fields like damage per second i mean you could calculate stuff in code too but it's just so straightforward in a spreadsheet yeah like what's the dps of this weapon what's the mana per second of this weapon what's the damage per mana of this weapon yeah those are all really interesting stats too because they kind of highlight areas where like uh, we were actually talking about this earlier. There's a specific weapon in the game at some point, which was pretty man efficient, pretty high damage, but we didn't love it. Which one? I think this was the Ice Axe. Ice Axe, yeah. And so like on paper, it kind of seemed to be a powerful weapon, but we noticed that in game either wasn't fun or it didn't feel as good. Right. And uh, I think that's an interesting kind of place to shine a light on is those kind of weird cases where you're like, this should be good. Why is it? Why is it not? Yeah. Like some of the worst weapons in the game can be also the most fun to use. That's a really hard balance, you know? Yeah, it is. And you were talking about yesterday, we've really raised the bar with the weapons we've put in the game. I think it was chain lightning. Did we talk about chain lightning? Uh, we may have, but let's talk about it again because chain lightning is awesome. <laughs> I really love chain lightning. <laughs> basically, that idea probably came from uh, Magic the Gathering, but it was basically like, you know, it just shoots this projectile out, but when it touches a monster, you know, like chain lightning, it'll try to jump to the next target. And it feels so good. It's so fun because like there's these rooms where there's a bunch of slimes in the middle and you walk up and you just launch chain lightning and you just watch it go like, choo, 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 and it just does a lot it deals progressively more damage as it, as it jumps from target to target which yeah. is super awesome because then you're like you know strategically it makes a lot more sense let's say you've got a knife here that's trying to kill you you actually attack the barrel next to it with chain lightning that's the more optimal way because it'll do you know end damage to the barrel and then end you know times 50 percent or you know, <laughs> like Something. more it does more damage to things it jumps to and so like that becomes really interesting because it's like you don't necessarily want to target the thing that you want to hurt the most. That's cool. Yeah, it is. It adds a lot of interesting strategy to what you're attacking. On the downside, it makes other weapons like the icicle, the one that you start with right now. It just shoots a little icicle forward and it stabs stuff and it goes away. Like it's That's so boring compared to chain lightning. So it's like you're playing the game and you're like, I hate icicle. And I want my chain lightning. I think that's good though because it we almost need that contrast, right? It's yeah. like 
you can't taste uh, sweet without sour kind of idea. Exactly. Like, we don't want it to feel crappy. We want it to feel decent. But we also want it to feel, like, vastly inferior to weapons that you get later on, perhaps. Because yeah, um, that's the whole point of the game, right? Is that, like, you open a chest and you find something that's better. Right. Or at least different or, or more fun or something, you know? It's got to have something we were... going for it. Yeah, and you need that dip, you know? It's like the, the human interest curve. You You can't have everything be intense all the time. Right, like that's the reason people complain about like Michael Bay movies, you know, because like, you might have a shot of just like, hey, how's it going? You want to get some coffee? And they're just like the cameras rotating around and music's pa pa pa, and like, dude, come on, it's just some coffee, man. Like, and then the coffee explodes. <laughs> right, it's like calm, <laughs> calm down, save that for the scene with the giant robots. All right, like there's a time and a place for that. Like, I'm a human being, I want to dip, and then I want some excitement. Right, the calm before the storm kind of thing. Yes. So it's like your it's almost like your default weapon kind of needs to be the crappiest in the game. You know, because it needs to be all uphill from there. Right. So there is like a little bit of room for it to just be like, you know, you know, it's a good utility weapon. You know, it gets the job done. It's not as sexy as chain lightning, it's not as fun as rupture, it's not as cool as killer bees, but you know, it it destroys barrels. You know, it kills <laughs> <It's>, slimes. <laughs> so there you go. It's very functional. It's, it's very functional. Plain get her done. I think that we're moving towards having probably three solid weapons per color. Because we have four blue, three green, and two red. And if we, you know, just cut a blue and added a red, we'd be at three. Yeah. Of each color. That's pretty good. I don't think we're going to cut quite yet, though. No, we're not ready to cut. One of our biggest things right now is we've got uh, Icicle, Tricycle, and Thricycle, which are just, like, very <laughs> samey. But we cannot decide when, like, when and where to cut, like, what tweaks to make. Although it's Which interesting that uh, we kind of talked about how those weapons rose in relative value because we added um, like a small melee attack, mm. which kind of changes the balance of the game a little bit. And I think hopefully in a good way, um, as we've been playing this game, you know, because mana is a resource and because weapons take mana, you know, there's the opportunity for you to run out of mana and uh, running out of mana kind of feels crappy. And so it's a, it's a difficult thing to balance, right? Yeah. Like on one hand, I think we both are pretty confident that we want a game where it is a twin stick shooter, but at the same time, you're not just running into a room and spraying everything with bullets. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, we want there to be some decision making like, yeah, you can get the AOE weapon, but you know, there are trade-offs. You have to think about it. It's a choice. Yeah. Um, and the AOE weapons especially were really annoying when you were just clearing barrels or killing something that was simple or there's only one enemy left in the room and you're like, hurling this you know spread shot of ice at them and, you know it just feels like overkill and every time you do it you're like oh so much mana being wasted <laughs> it's terrible yes and uh and and then like clearing barrels and stuff right you're like i don't want to use this crazy good weapon on barrels and so that influenced you know as a player it influences your choices like you'd see the thricycle and you'd be like well i'm gonna waste a lot of mana clearing barrels and two out of those three shots aren't always going to hit a target. In fact, they're probably rarely going to hit a target, um, except for those scenarios where like, I'm in a room where there's a lot of stuff close together and I just need to blanket it with projectiles. Um, so to kind of combat that, our first iteration was we added this idea called fizzle. <laughs> and fizzle is basically when your wand is out of mana, uh, you shoot like a really crappy little projectile. And that proved to be really hard to balance because if you make it too strong, then it's not punishing enough. It's like, yeah, whatever. Now my icicle is black, but it does, you know, 
almost as much damage. <laughs> I even noticed I was almost kind of glad when I was out of blue mana because then when I destroyed barrels, I didn't feel like I was losing anything. <laughs> right. Like spending, you know, because you, you spend one blue mana on an icicle and you blow up a barrel and maybe there's nothing in it. And you're like, I just bought nothing. That doesn't feel good. You <laughs> right. know, but when you're out and you've only got this fizzle, <laughs> you know, it's funny like, when you were saying it out loud, it's just like reaffirmed to me, like, this is a bad idea, <laughs> you know, because it's like fizzle just this the word alone sounds like <laughs> sounds crappy yeah it's like does that sound fun to you you want to hey. play this game you run a mana you get a crappy fizzle <laughs> like <laughs> that doesn't sound fun does it no it sounds awful i think of harry potter and his wand or like ron weasley right in the harry potter movies when his wand breaks and he like tapes <laughs> it together and it's like <laughs> and it's like just crappy magic the crappiest magic ever like that's not fun that's a comedic element right like yeah. you don't want that in an action game and it influences player behavior like you're saying like what would happen is i'd have fizzle and i'd be like oh great fizzle now i'm gonna go blow up every barrel in the room first with my <laughs> fizzle so i don't waste any mana and then i'll go collect what was in the barrels and yeah, that doesn't exactly. feel like super good either no so yeah we, we actually spent a couple of iterations on that and we realized that we were basically just trying to band-aid a bigger problem and i think it's kind of interesting because you know previous versions of unity and um previous kind of visions we had for the game was a lot more melee based right like in the unity version we had this headbutt mechanic where you know you hit the attack button and raga has this little headbutt frame he shows and he moves forward a little bit there's like a little whoosh and then he would you know connect with uh enemies and hurt them and whatnot and uh, we kind of moved away from that partially because like you know i'm not going to mention the failed kickstarter again but it was like it, it presented the game in a way that wasn't as exciting you know and we also wanted to move back to the things in the original game that worked really well and one of them was the twin stick shooter elements you know it's fun to walk into a room full of monsters and you kind of start circling around and collecting treasure and just firing at them constantly and it was like it's a chaotic fun combat and we wanted to capture that again you know we wanted to move back towards that but then with the mana we had this kind of problem where uh looking at melee attacks became very attractive again yeah, it's like a good way to balance out, you know, being out of mana, but also like allowing the player to pick up a kind of mana heavy resource, uh, like a wand that, that takes a lot of mana. Yeah. Um, but then allowing them to make intelligent decisions about, well, I'm going to use my melee attack to destroy the barrels because that's way more efficient. Yeah. Um, or like using the melee attack to finish off an enemy to get that last hit you need. You know, you put right. yourself in a little danger, but, you know, all you have to do is just smack it once and it'll go away. Right. Um, so stuff like that, I think the melee attack really helps. Um, the direction we've been going right now is with a tail attack. Yeah, it's different. It's kind of like a sweeping, like a circular AOE around you. And so right. it just kind of, you know, you spin your tail around and you hit everything that's in within a pretty small radius. But I think that's good. It, it feels pretty weak, but it's also infinite. And, uh, and also efficient. And it allows you to do pretty cool stuff. Like, it's so much better than Fizzle in so many ways because it harmonizes <laughs> with the game a lot better, you know? Yeah. Like, with Fizzle, you don't really have a choice. It's like, okay, you're either out of mana or you're not. And so, if you have mana, you're shooting projectiles and you're using mana to destroy barrels. And if you're out of mana, you just have this crappy attack. Right. But with the melee, we're giving you the option to say, you know, in this scenario, I think it would be better for me to melee than to waste my mana. Yeah. There's some player agency in there. There's some choice. 
there's some strategy, you know, and you were talking about like this also gives us the opportunity to have a bunch of passive bonuses and items and whatnot where you could basically build a character that's really good at melee. Yeah, I like that idea a lot. That could be really interesting, you know, like an unexpected way to play and uh, a totally valid way to play because, you know, as powerful as melee is going to get, it's still always going to have this advantage of you've got to put yourself into the mix. You've got to, you know, be face to face with that danger, you know? It's really interesting because it promotes certain items, you know, like if you get the shield, which basically just gives you invulnerability for a number of seconds, like you pair that with the melee attack and it gets really good. That's true. Especially if you had some kind of item that buffed the melee damage. You know, you could pop a shield. Uh, you could go in and just wreck things with your melee attack. Yeah, there could be a spell where it's like, you know, uh, increases your melee damage by 300% for five seconds or whatever. Sure, yeah. Yeah, stuff like that. I like it. Or we could uh, add like an item that adds like a knockback component. So whenever you hit things with Ooh. your tail, things kind of go flying to the corners oh, like of the that. room. Uh, there's lots of cool stuff we could do. I was also thinking that, you know, we could have different, we could even have things like headbutt in the game too, you know, like uh, perhaps like a different version of Raga that you can choose to start with hmm. where he has headbutt instead of tails or something. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's just, there's all kinds of stuff we could do with the melee. That's like far future kind of idea, but yeah, the knockback is kind of like a more of a near future kind of idea. Yeah, we actually, we really took the, the melee mechanics seriously this time. We, uh, for one, we had a discussion about whether or not we should stick with it or use fizzle or try some other way of solving the out of mana problem. <sighs> fizzle. <laughs> so we talked about that and we decided we really hate fizzle and we like melee uh, a lot. And then we talked about, you know, headbutt versus tail. And we talked about like, which is more fun, which is more mechanically interesting this this is important, which is easier to develop, you know, in the code. That means balance. That means bug testing. That means, uh, like, headbutt is kind of problematic because it kind of wants to put on pause all the normal player inputs, like movements, controls. And then it also wants to do some complicated things, like I want to move the player forward. I want to hurt monsters. So I want to be colliding with monsters and, and hurting them. But we don't want the player to be taking any damage because that would feel really cheap, you know? So there's some complication there. Uh, here's a pretty important one. What feels more lizardy, you know, because we've got this lizard character. We've talked before about our desire to make it matter more that you are a lizard, you know, um, like we might someday revisit the tongue mechanic, which was something we were focusing on with the last iteration. Uh, but in the meantime, like with some kind of a melee mechanic, like which one it feels more lizardy? Is it headbutt or is it tail whip? Uh, I think we decided tail whip. Yes. Because, like, you know, anything can headbutt. Like, you know, a dog could headbutt. Goats are known for headbutting. And, like, you know, just about any animal with a head can can headbutt, right? But, like, with the lizard, pretty much every lizard you can think of has a tail. You know, you can see Raga's tail almost all the time, you know? And then, so, like, him just attacking with his tail starts to make a lot of sense. It's interesting that you mentioned a goat because the goat would be, like, a great candidate for the headbutt, right? Because they typically have horns. That is kind of, like, their primary method of, like, you know, either attacking or playing or asserting male dominance or something. Yes. And so like yeah. that not only can a goat headbutt, but it is very likely to do so. Yeah, they're known for it. Did you know uh, you can play with baby goats by punching them in the head? <laughs> not not like super baby, <laughs> like adolescent goats. They like they like to just play like that. They so just punch them in the head and they're like, yes. Yes. This, <laughs> Keep punching me in the head. <laughs> this is trading for when I need to fight for a mate. I was built for this. <laughs> was pretty much, yeah. 
let's box and like <laughs> how how many times have you ever seen a lizard head butt anything oh uh that was at one time <laughs> there i was in my garden when this you know yeah salamander came up and just headbutted a bird <laughs> it's like bam uh i can actually picture that that's that pretty great funny. yeah this is the crappiest bird though if you can't get away from a salamander trying to headbutt you right it's like evolution did you a disservice You're like the worst bird ever <laughs> the worst bird <laughs> much more likely is that salamander is going to tail whip the bird <laughs> the bird will be like <laughs> <laughs> much more likely <laughs> actually uh, uh iguanas are known for being ornery tail whippers really yeah interesting like yeah. in out in the wild is, is it a defensive thing is it a predatory thing or is it just like to tell humans they don't want to be pet right now uh i would guess it's kind of like a global defensive mechanism mm. but the only context i've ever seen it in is household iguanas not being not wanting to be picked up did you see this in person or like on youtube or something no i saw it my a friend a friend growing up had a couple of iguanas and you, like you tried to pick it up and it would whip your hand i didn't try to pick it up <laughs> you're like i'm not putting my hand in there <laughs> things got tail whip dude it's a powerful are, ability they are big <laughs> or they can get big you know they can get big yeah i've seen some big ones like and their toes to- look so insane as they get older they're kind of scary really you're scared of lizards no i'm not scared of them but i mean like iguanas <laughs> like it's like a foot and a half long mm. you know the body and then the tail is like another you know foot and a half or whatever can do some damage to you yeah they could lizards don't make the best pets ever unless no. they're raga unless they're raga then he well he's kind of like a human like he's a, he's like more like a cat in a lizard yeah body. he's like a cat like our vision of raga is he pretty much really just wants to like sleep on his pet bed all day and then he wants to eat really good food and then he wants you to pet him and that's it so that's a cat that's basically a cat yeah yeah so he acts like a cat and if pushed if he has to he will go be a heroic adventurer he will whip <laughs> things with his tail and shoot magic at them he will cast spells yes he will do all of these things so anyways, just like real lizards <laughs> just like, right. <laughs> anyways the yes. upshot there is that the tail whip is slightly more on theme than than the headbutt probably yay go us slightly better <laughs> slightly better all right but like kind of as we always talk about, you know, it's better to have some reason than no reason, you know? It's true. The headbutt is kind of like a, it's a decent way to attack something, but it doesn't yeah. really have roots in anything that we could point to and say like, well, this is why we actually have a headbutt because blah. I think there are some dinosaurs I think of. That Triceratops? Yeah, Triceratops. It's- There's other one that had, was known for having like a really thick skull, had like a round head. Oh, yeah. It had stupid looking thumbs too, I think. It did. I don't remember the name. Iguanodon? Man, I tell you what. Iguan- oh, wow. That may-, may be it. When I was eight years old, I knew all this stuff. Oh, yeah, dude. I was so into dinosaurs. I was yeah, kid. man. I knew all about that stuff. And But like the Brontosaurus was known for tail whipping. You know, you could you trip a T-Rex and the T-Rex is like, oh, crap. I don't have good arms for this. Like it's going to take me forever to get back up. And by that time, you're going to be able to walk away. This sucks. Right. You know, T-Rex does not want to be tripped with the tail whip. Those stupid arms. That. Can't get up. Yeah, I can't do crap with those stupid arms. And you've got Ankylosaurus, which is kind of like, it's almost like a turtle looking thing. And it's mm. got like a hard shell back and spikes. Oh, and it's the got one with like the hammer tail? Yeah, hammer tail. Yeah, like surely that one's whipping stuff with its tail. Surely. 65 million years ago, right? And then you've got Stegosaurus, which is the one with the plates on the back and then the spiky tail. I'm sure that it would hit things with its spiky tail. For sure. 
for sure. No you gotta question. Use, <laughs> you can't have a spiky tail and not spike stuff with it. Come on. Right. It's the whole purpose. Also, shish kebabs. <laughs> That's true. That's yeah. very true. Dinosaur shish kebabs. Anybody. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> we should call it a wizard's dinosaur. That one really rolls off the tongue. Yeah, it does. <laughs> a minotaur's dinosaur. Oh, well, I'm going to write that one down. That's that's the next game right there, sir. <laughs> no. <laughs> we could have a whole uh, series of like, you know, a blanks blah. I think we should. An X is Y. A two dudes game. We are marching forward towards Indie Cup. Indie Cup. Uh, which is, uh, I think we've mentioned it before, but it's an event put on by Greg Love of Whippering, which is his independent game marketing pr biz dev company yep uh he helped us do promo on wizards wizard one we've talked about him before we've interviewed him before and uh he's hosting this up in san francisco on december 10th so if you're in the area uh you should check it out it's like you know five or ten bucks for a ticket and uh, you can play a whole bunch of cool indie games um matt will put a link in the show notes and you can visit the website and see which games are going to be there? I know there's going to be some VR stuff and um, a couple of the games that you've probably heard of. Uh, Duskers, which is an early access game by uh, the same guy from a virus named Tom. And uh, a couple other games from people that we have met a couple times. Um, and then a bunch of new stuff, too. Nice. I'm really excited about that. And I uh, we need external deadlines big time. Yeah. You and I. Kind of suck without them. They they can't be self-imposed because when they're self-imposed, that's a really, it's, it's weak, you know, like it's, how easy is it to tell me, like, Matt, just shut up and wait a month, you know, <laughs> like right. that's too easy, but we're not going to say like, Greg, look, I know you did a lot of work on this and I know that you've been advertising the date for a while and you're working with Eventbrite and you've actually like, you know, reserved this space and you've bought you got you know, promotional material yeah, and there's sponsors and there's dozens of other developers on board. But look, look, I, I realize all that. But can we make it January? Is that cool? How about February? How about, how about we'll just let you know? Yeah, we'll let you know when we're ready. Here, I'm just going to send him an email right now. Dear Greg, <laughs> just just don't. <laughs> just don't, yeah. So, like, we, we kind of need that, you know, to where, you know, this is this is the date that's external and you can't, you know, you can't push it and it's very important. Uh, I think this is important, too. It's not just, like, <clears throat> some kind of arbitrary deadline. It's, like there's a very concise goal the game needs to meet, which is that it is very demoable in a kind of public crowd-based scenario, you know? Yes. It needs to be, like, high energy. It needs to be obvious what's going on. It needs to be, like, really easy to jump in and immediately just start throwing weapons, having fun. It needs to be easy for us to talk about while we're there. You know, like, the game needs to be very playable and, like, ready for eyeballs. Sounds tough. It does sound tough. We have, I'm, I'm, I have to say I'm pretty nervous because like right now we have a month. We basically have a month because if we act like we have more than a month, then we're never going to make it. <laughs> right. So we have like a month and change and uh, the game like right now, whoo, we have several what we call showstopper tickets, which uh, have just got to be done or else like, you know, don't, don't look at us. Yeah. You know, we have to just hide our shame. It's true. There are a bunch of showstoppers, but I think that the difference is that we have a like we have a playable game and it's it's important to make that distinction because the game itself has you know you can die you can take damage you can heal damage you can get currency you can exchange that currency for items and like not all the items are balanced not all the currencies are balanced 
but you know all of those kind of fundamental pieces exist like there are challenges that you can overcome or lose to there are things you can buy there are you know there's a noticeable lack of like secrets yeah and that kind of thing so there's not a whole lot of depth to explore but the fundamental mechanics you know make it so you can actually play win or lose a game yeah, for sure. Like you can you can jump in, you can start, you can play, you can win or you can lose, you can have a lot of fun, you can experience all the content. It's kind of a vertical slice. Like basically once we get the showstopper tickets done, it will very much be that. Where you know, it's like, yeah, you can play the whole game. I mean, it's just a kitchen dungeon right now. But you know, if you can just imagine <laughs> more content and more dungeons, like that's the game. Just more and better. Instead of like, oh yeah, just imagine that there's a menu there and yeah, when you die, the game just um reboots itself. So <laughs> Don't don't mind that. Refresh to play again, right? <laughs> you were gonna say that. Uh, I wonder if listeners remember that kind of stuff. I hope not. How how you are known? You're known for that. Was it uh, Geometry Wars the first time you did that? <laughs> you it mean was, my, my clone of Geometry Wars? What would you call it? Oh, shapes. Shapes. Yeah. Yeah. Is that yeah. online somewhere still? Yeah, I think so. So yeah, you. Uh, <laughs> When you die in that game, you just got this text that appears that says refresh to play again, which is like the laziest way in the web world to be like, you know, I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Like how easy would it be for you to have a button there that literally just does like, you know, location.reload or whatever. (laughs) Listen, man. (laughs) It's only a one liner. It's so lazy. <laughs> and you've uh, you've kind of done it since, but I think it was more like you know it was less laziness in the future, or like since then it was it was more just kind of like hey, remember when I was really lazy? Haha. <laughs> well, Here funny, it is again. The funny thing is, is that uh, it's probably more work to actually make like uh, the message that pops up that says plus press refresh <laughs> to play again. Uh, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I love it because it's very web centric. You know, like that. Uh, it wouldn't really work in other scenarios, like a downloadable game. What is it like? quit to play again <laughs> yeah restart the app to play again please <laughs> it's perfect for web because yeah. like yeah i know i can refresh you jerk like it's a web page i get it it's not helpful oh <laughs> uh, i love that a lot i hate you so much it's the best uh, another area that i've been spending some time on in awl 2 is uh, the ui in general we kind of touched on it a yes. little bit with the tooltips earlier on but i've also been trying to spend some time like moving the information that's on the screen around yes uh or change the size location orientation of it and then cut some stuff completely or not you're actually you've been designing the user interface imagine that whoa you you were like okay so your eyes are in the center of the screen where your character your character avatar almost always is right and you're like from there what's the most important information i want to know my health so that needs to be in the center you know and then you're like there's these occasional things like you don't always need to know like, you never need to know how many coins you have in the heat of combat. That's just never a thing you have to deal with. And so, the coins can be off to the side, right? It can be upper left or something. And we were talking about the design of the UI in a wizard's lizard. We were like, why is that shoved in the corner? You know? Like, we just we'd take things like the map, just shove in the corner. Like, your health, I don't know. Shove your health <laughs> in the corner. You know why we did that? <clears throat> because that's what people do. People put stuff in the corner. You can look at any corner in my apartment. There's some crap shoved in that corner. <laughs> you know what i mean like you want to get it out of the way you're like okay the game is front and center the combat's happening here like everything else just like like just snap snap to grid right get it out of my face and we never really actually came back and designed it yeah you put some thought into its placement i did uh it kind of got a lot more important because of the fact that there are more important numbers right now 
Yeah. Um, like the addition of the mana, like we were talking about earlier, kind of makes it so that, you know, you want to know how much mana you have generally. Yes, you do. It's uh, good to know. And so that's something that we wanted to highlight. Um, the other thing I've been doing is trying to kind of take a page out of, here it comes, Spelunky. Uh-oh. What? <laughs> oh, no. It's been like no. half an episode since we mentioned it. <laughs> if you're not familiar with Spelunky, the Xbox version had this like horrifically overdone UI. It was big. It was big. It Elaborate. looked really pretty, but it was big and it was like all shoved into the upper left-hand corner. And it made it really annoying, especially in that game when you're looking for like, you know, you you try and see if you could get to a room or if you needed to get to a room. And if that place happened to be in the upper left corner of the screen, like you'd have this UI like blocking everything and it was really it was really annoying. Yeah. It also didn't tell you a lot of stuff that you might want to know. Like right. which level are you on? Time. The time. Yeah. Um anyways, and then the PC version uh eventually uh landed this change, which is what they call the Pro HUD. Right. And the Pro HUD is just a really streamlined version that's, you know, perfect for streaming and, and speed running and that kind of stuff where yeah. it just simplifies the UI, makes it small but visible and uh, and puts more information on the screen, but also minimizes the impact that, you know, a lot of visual stuff would have. Yeah. Um, so, I, I thought it was interesting that it takes up less space, but it has more information. Yeah. It's almost better across the board. You know, like maybe it's not as pretty, but it looks fine. And honestly... The UI just gets in the way of these gorgeous sprites in that game. That's one way of looking at it. You know, like it is prettier because it's smaller. And so in our game, the UI is meant to hide the crappy sprites. (laughs) You bastard. (laughs) (laughs) Took me a minute. Sinks Uh, in like, oh, he's dissing you. Yes, that's right. I'm I'm going to have to go wreck your, I'm going to wreck your code. uh, You're going to hide some bugs. You you do that all the time anyway. (laughs) I walked right into that one. Yes, you did. <laughs> so I yeah, kid, you took a page from Splunky for the nine hundred millionth time. The game has really inspired us. Yes, but it's good. I really like the. Uh, actually, it wasn't just Splunky too. Like you were talking about World of Warcraft and Heroes of the Storm, where like you know we've talked about our cool box, which is basically our cooldown toolbox, <laughs> like a mashup, and you kind of place those things front and center, and so your um your mana resources are right in the middle. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's like right. at the tip of your fingers, you know? Uh, we also have this really cool idea that I want to implement, whereas uh, it kind of shows your mana number on your body when it changes. Yeah. And so your eyes are kind of always in the center of the screen looking at your character or very near to your character, and so we can kind of visualize stuff on the character Yeah, um, like that. So that's something we'll probably play with in the future as well. That was going to be really important because, like, I would be playing the game, you know, you're in the kitchen banquets and you're running around killing pig heads and knives and ice boxes and stuff. And, uh, you know, you're just launching homing bees or icicles or whatever. And then you're just out and you get the fizzle. <laughs> and I'm like, no, because I had no idea I was running out. You know, like, it's something really important. We want to visualize pretty much on the player, you yeah. know, at least give them a heads up for, like, the very minimum, one of these things that games will do sometimes where they give you a warning like, low on mana, you know, like, green wizard's about to die. Like, you know, just give me a heads up before it's like, you're fine. Your mana's just, no, you're screwed. <laughs> right. Like, like I need to ease me into it, you know? You're good, you're good, you're good. Oh, that's awful. Um, you go from fine to dead. That's true. So anyways, uh, you know, one of the things that we're working on in general is just trying to make the game better for the players to experience and that doesn't necessarily mean making really good content although it does but it also just means taking the existing pieces and making sure that uh 
you know, there's some kind of thought behind where they are and how they present information to the player. Yeah, for sure. Um, actually, something that just popped up on Twitter that Ooh. I'm going to talk about real quick. <laughs> uh, we have a Twitter follower who asks us, uh, new RPG Maker came out this week and it's web tech. Looks like it runs Pixie. Any thoughts? Oh, Hashtag Lostcast. Ooh. Ooh, I like the hashtag Lostcast. We, why aren't we using that? <laughs> That's your job, man. You're, you're the Twitter I know. guy. Why am I so bad at uh, the Twitters and the socials? <laughs> I can think of a few reasons. <laughs> <laughs> ah, what a jerk face. I know. Uh, so RPG Maker that uses Pixie. Yeah. Interesting. That is interesting. Um, I think that's a good idea. <laughs> sounds so official yeah and sure of yourself well let's let's break it down all right uh the pros pixie uh is pretty cool i've used pixie before it is a very fast very uh i would say pretty simple like rendering engine and uh we've talked about this before but i think it's an important distinction to make is that pixie is not a game engine right uh it's primarily built around you know using webgl and canvas to create 2d content so like sprites you know which are a big thing in games um happen to be you know one of the core things there and it's basically like a scene graph right where you can have uh entities and they have or not entities sorry you have like sprites with transformations and they can display pictures and filtering and all that good stuff um and it seems really i haven't kept up with it recently but it seems really powerful they have webgl filters and all kinds of cool stuff phaser was built on top of pixie uh it might still be although i think phaser three might not be uh, really last time we talked to rich davy he mentioned that uh phaser three was not going to be built on pixie they were going to have their own webgl rendering engine i don't know really? if that's still true huh but that's what he said like written from scratch uh i believe so yeah interesting i wonder why um i think we actually talked about it on that second rich davy <laughs> interview Oh, so if you I, want, should, I should really know. <laughs> well, it was a I while should. ago, and you know that stuff's kind of over your head. So, <laughs> man, wow, I'm just I'm on a roll today. You're on a roll. I am. I'm taking a beating today. <laughs> <laughs> I got to prepare for next week. I had a lot of coffee this morning, so I am. That's like, what it is. I'm in yes. a rare mood. Listeners, you may not know this, but uh, Jeff and caffeine—they uh, don't mix. He becomes violent and abusive. <laughs> it's true. Yes, I'm, I'm going to call the cops. <laughs> I don't know why caffeine affects me so crazily. It really does. And like, it's not that I don't have it very often. I actually drink caffeine quite a bit, but, you know, I, don't, I have like no tolerance. <laughs> I'm like a person that gets drunk off one beer. Except I for think it's caffeine. maybe because you're always so mellow. <laughs> maybe. You know, like you're, you're just this solid line. Like, you know, when you're bummed out, you're like, yeah, it's fine. I mean, when you're really happy, you're like, oh, that's cool. You know, there's a solid line. So it's like drugs make you make you peak. Yeah, give you spikes. Oh, drugs! <laughs> uh, that's good stuff. Yeah, I'm not a drug addict. I promise. So, are you going to switch to RPG Maker? Uh no. Let's ditch. Let's just gin. <laughs> stitch all this code. Oh yeah, so that's right. That's what we were talking about. So the other <laughs> side effect of coffee is that I can't hold a train of thought for more than about fifteen seconds. <laughs> <laughs> grab onto that train, boss. That's right. Grab onto Ride that, that train. train, boss, to the end of the show. Um, <laughs> you got this. I think it's it's a cool idea. I mean, it, it has to be paired with like their own game engine. I kind of am curious to know if like 
they're just using it for rendering and then they have their own JavaScript game engine or they're mm-hmm. using like mscripten to like cross compile their stuff. I don't know. It's uh, it's really interesting. I don't know a whole lot about it, but um, maybe I'll look into it and I'll have an answer for you next week. But I think, you know, on the surface, it sounds like a really cool idea. Um, we've actually met the Pixie Guys at a conference and they're really cool. I think that the work they're doing is really awesome. And I love the idea of tools that are just very uh, simple and specific. Does one thing, one thing well. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I've, I've seen that like from the Construct2 side because like, you know, we we attract uh, a good portion of developers and they tend to be web. They tend to be, you know, JavaScript. Um, and a lot of them are uh, more on the beginner spectrum because we have, we kind of cater to the audience. We'll have a lot of like, you know, Game Dev 101, how to get started. And like, you know, our Twitter kind of supports that kind of thing. And uh, so we get a lot of people from Construct2 who are, are using that and, you know, listening to the podcast or reading our blog or whatever. And like when I posted the postmortem, uh, some people concerned like, okay, it looks like you guys don't like HTML5 anymore. Like what's what's the deal there? Because, you know, you're using Construct2, you're making your game, you're having a good time. You still do have to worry about launching it. You know, you have to worry about wrapping it up. Like you got to go figure out NWJS or Atom or whatever, you know, like you need to have something, you know? So like, that'd be my question about RPG Maker is like, are they also gonna like bundle it up with NWJS or something? Or are they like, use RPG Maker, it gives you some HTML files. And after that, go figure it out. Good luck, have fun. <laughs> you know? Good luck, Cause like for five. some people that's that's really overwhelming, you know? Cause like, you know, you, you had to touch on some C++ even for um, Steamworks support, right? Like just, just touch it. You didn't have to like, you know, go <laughs> super deep into it. And have to but get waist deep in it. But it's like, I feel like a lot of web developers, um, like the web tools are great, you know, and they cater to you a lot. And like, if we're being honest, a lot of web tech, the, what's so attractive about it is that it's easier. You know, it's easy. Like JavaScript is probably just straight up easier than, than C++ a lot of times, you know. And uh, when you have to go and go for like from that web tech stuff, which is a little easier to like low level NWJS or, you know, compilation steps. I think that that's where people can take the leap from like, you know, I'm kind of comfortable. I've barely got this together, but I think I know what I'm doing to, oh crap, I'm way over my head. I don't know what's happening anymore. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? And I would be a little concerned about that step. Yeah, that's, uh, that's true. It, and it also could be like, I don't really know the context of this very much, but you know, maybe the editor itself is using Pixie. Right. And you're still deploying to like, you know, C++ or something. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I'll have to find out more about it. Next week on Lost Cast. That's right. <laughs> Tune in next week when Jeff finally figures out the mysteries behind RPG Maker. Right. Uh, uh, well, that'll be fun. <laughs> yes, it will. In the meantime, I've got a new art tip. Wait, I thought we were done with those. Uh, no, I remember I lied. Can we, can we be done with them? <laughs> wow. <laughs> This is coffee, everybody. Coffee cast right here. Yes. This is what I have to put up with. Cof- with coffee Jeff. Blair. Jeff decides to caffeinate. Uh, okay. So I was looking recently at all the Proco videos I had to watch. And if you're not familiar, Proco uh, is this series of videos who this guy teaches you how to draw. And he's he's stupidly good. And he draws like a weirdo. He's got this crazy pencil. And uh, <laughs> he does lots of tricks and techniques that are just kind of over my head if I'm being perfectly honest, but I at least wanted to watch everything and kind of get a feel for um, where he's coming from. And he has hundreds of videos. He has hours and hours of content. And like my, the ticket and Asana I made for myself was um, watch all the Proco videos. <laughs> like that ticket had been open for months and it's like, I'm never going to close that every day. I would like, maybe I'd watch one, maybe I wouldn't, but it was really overwhelming. You know, it was like 
finish eating this whale. <laughs> it, it was just like too much for one meal. You know what I mean? But if it's like, you know, eat this, eat this cupcake. Like I can do that. So my, my point here is uh, to break it down. Because uh, here's how I made it through Control Paint. Because Control Paint has a similar thing going on where it's like, here's hundreds of videos, right? Or at least dozens and dozens. And it's uh, it's overwhelming. Like, how do you get through this list? So here's what I did specifically. This was like late last year or something. It was, um, <clears throat> I literally went save as on his page with that lists all of his videos, right? And I made a local copy of it myself. And then I started to, I would just have my own local copy I would use to browse the videos instead of his. And what I would do is since I have access to the HTML, I would just start to strike out the videos that I've seen. Mm. And I could just go down the list. And so instead of it being like, here's this massive thing, just go watch some of it and put a dent in it and you're never going to get this done. So why do you even try? You know, it just felt really overwhelming. But breaking it down to like, it's just this linear strip. You know, it's like I can see I've watched the first 10 because they have strike through and then here's the next one, next one on the list, you know, and like over a period of weeks or months, you will eventually get through it. Right. And uh, I think that this is the kind of thing that's not even necessarily uh, just for art. Uh, like you could do the same kind of thing with, with game development, you know, no, like, okay. You <laughs> well, you've got like, okay, I got to <laughs> worry about the UI and the game design and the marketability and the main character design and some brand new mechanics and gravity and physics and just like... You get overwhelmed, you know, and uh, it just needs, you got to break it down, you know, baby steps, like anything giant can be broken down into lots and lots of small pieces. And I think that that's what makes it more bite-sized and uh, therefore more doable. You know what you should do is you should have a recurring task in Asana that's like a weekly task that just says, watch a video, watch one of these videos. Yeah. I, I kind of had something along those lines. Yeah. Um, And I had like, I found that the more specific, like exact that it is, the better, because I would have this ticket that was like practice every day. I'm like, okay, so I'll practice. And it was honestly, it was a little too vague because it was like, uh, I'm going to get down into this uh, with uh, in the next week. Actually, my point is going to talk about this a little bit, but it's like, there's so many things in art to practice, you know, and the same thing with game dev. It's like, there's, there's so much like, what are you going to do today? What are you going to do next? You know? And you need to find how to focus, like how to find what it is that you want to do, you know? Yeah, I think it's, it's a hard a, thing. It's a common problem I have that with just like general programming tasks. Like we'll often yeah. make these tickets in Asana that's like, I think I have one right now that says, you know, balance keys and coin drops. <laughs> and it's like, how how do you close a ticket like that? Like it's yeah. fairly specific even, but it's it's still even way too vague to like make it actionable because it's like, well... I made some changes, but is it done? Right. Probably not. You know, it's probably going to be one of those tasks that's just like, the task is really this, is constantly be improving the balance of keys and coins. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of an ongoing thing, but like, I feel like the ongoing one would be more like constantly be playing and making tweaks based on how the game feels, right? But right. like for that one specific ticket, the very first thing I would do is I would break that up into keys and coins separately. Right. Because like it's I do this all the time. I, I did this this week. I'll make a ticket that's like, you know, art for this thing and that thing. Yeah. I'm like, crap, like, I, I can't stop myself from doing that. But seriously, those are two tasks, you know, so like balance the keys. That's one balance the coins. That's another. And then you can break those down further. It can be like, OK, play three games and see how keys feel. Right. And after that, like it, basically bump it. You know, if it feels like you didn't have enough keys, give yourself a little more, like distribute them a little better and then play three more games, you know? And like, same thing with coins. It's like, okay, so play a handful of games, try to buy some stuff, see how it feels, make an adjustment, 
do it again. You know, it's like you can break it down into individual steps, but the first part is like separating the pieces that are really obvious. Right. It's hard too with the roguelike because, you know, even three games is a pretty small sample size when you're talking about random generation. Right. It's yeah, like you almost true. need like a dozen games per <laughs> per slight tweak. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's really rough. <clears throat> that's the thing that's really hard about it. Yeah. We we use lots of cooking analogies, I think, because we both like um, cooking. And then uh, also because there's like, uh, it's easy to see how you can be like, you want to make better chili, make some chili, taste it along the way, you know, <laughs> eat it, <laughs> see if you like it. And if you don't adjust and then do the whole thing over again. Right. Yeah. It's like, that's the, the thing that's tough about it though, is like the, uh, the tasting part. Like that's really cheap when you're cooking. You just put some in your mouth, <laughs> see what you thought. But when you're playing a game, it can be like spend an hour playing. Right. right? And you're like, oh, that's overwhelming because like, you know, we've only got eight hours in your average work day. And it's like, I, you know, just fixing the code is going to take me two hours. And like sometimes in the back of your head, I think all game developers probably feel this way. When you're playing your own game, you kind of feel like you're wasting time. <laughs> right like you're navel gazing like you're not moving forward you know and because like that's a tr- easy trap to fall in is people will have like especially like hobbyist or whatnot like okay i've got two hours tonight i'm gonna sit down i want to make progress in this game you know and you sit down you play it for an hour and you're like ah oh, man I, I just i was playing instead of making but like that's the thing it's hard to balance it's really important to play it too right and it's not tough. only do you have to play it but you have to like you know make notes either in your head or on paper about things that that bother you, you know? Yeah. One of the things I try to do is I try to have like these little, like this little note, you know, notepad app open or something, or just a sublime text window. And as I'm playing, I'll just jot down, you know, something that's even more frictionless than creating a ticket in Asana. Yeah. (laughs) You know, just write down like the worst (laughs) grammatical sentence ever. Just so you know, (laughs) like, Oh, this thing bothered me or I didn't get enough of these or too many of these things or whatever. Uh, the the downside there is sometimes like I've, I've found myself doing this is um I will make these really cryptic notes and I literally don't know what the hell I was talking about later. <laughs> Me, keys, good, room, bad, corner. Right. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, what, what is that? Past Matt, this is not helpful, dude. To be fair, that happens with Asana tickets as well sometimes. It does, yeah. It's What's funny is you and I do these, we call it double dragon sessions where we'll kind of go through either specific tickets or we'll just go through all these mass of asana tickets that we have and sometimes we'll get to one and we're like you know what is comb dungeon room floor what does that even mean <laughs> like oh i think that we now close it yeah <laughs> i got nothing <laughs> shut it down shut down yeah on the other side i'll do this sometimes i'll be like let's say i'm like okay i want to play on the couch i want to see what it would be actually like to play this game instead of like you know wearing my developer hat and so I'll lay down on the couch and I've got the gamepad in my hand and I'm playing on the big screen. And then like, you know, I'll find some problem and I'll hit pause. I'll get up, I'll go over to my laptop and I'll, I'll fix the problem, come back to the game and hit refresh. And I've completely killed, for one, the immersion. For two, like where I was in the game, right? Like right. what kind of mindset I had when I had, like I hit that problem that I felt like needed fixing at that exact moment, you know? I think that that is the wrong thing to do. Although it can feel very effective because it feels like you're playing and you're making are tied nicely together. But the problem is that you're, you're basically not really playing at that point. You're only like, you're playing as a developer, you're playing until, you know, like this tiny little slice, like 30 seconds of gameplay, you find a problem and you fix it and you start again. You're not getting a good picture of your game as a whole at that point. You know what is a good solution to that problem? What? Uh, that thing we used to do in person where one of us would play basically like I would be on my laptop yeah. And I would be serving the game from my laptop and you would be playing it either from your laptop or on the TV. 
And as you're encountering bugs or suggestions, you know, I'm like either making tickets or writing it down or I'm changing the code on the fly and then you're refreshing. And so you have that like very quick iteration where, you know, you can go from like, this is bothering me to I changed it to testing it again in like a very short period of time. Yes, man, that was good stuff. We did that on Skype a little bit. It's not quite the same. It's kind of, it's not as effective because we don't really have that, you know, you're hitting my local server and I'm making changes, excuse me, on the fly. Right. Um, we could do that, actually. I mean, I could open up some ports to my router and you could yeah. you could hit my local server or whatever. So that might be cool. It's doable. Yeah. But that kind of like, um, you get, you know, one person is firmly the player and one person is firmly the developer and you get this nice kind of balance there, you know, yeah. it's really good. Um, I did want to talk about game design patterns a little bit too. Do it! Real quick. Uh, so last week we talked about singletons, I think, and uh, some good discussion on the forum about that. So thanks yeah. for that. Um, one of our listeners, uh, Sam and Moose, also um, brought up the Game Programming Patterns book, um, which actually I think you can read for free uh, online HTML, um, but it's also like a book that you can uh, buy on Amazon in print, ebook, PDF. Um, it's pretty cool. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff on there, and uh, I'm actually going to take a little bit of their optimization patterns and talk about that. Nice. Um, because I find those things to be um, pretty useful. Um, so this week, we'll talk about... Uh, I'm actually going to go backwards, because the first one on the list is called Data Locality, which I understand a little bit about, but I haven't actually implemented that system. But mm. I'm very interested in it, and so I'll probably talk about that at some point in the future. But... The last one on that list is called spatial partitioning, which, um, again, we've talked about before in certain contexts, namely quad trees. Um, but spatial partitioning is actually something that you can use in all kinds of in all kinds of places. Um, obviously, like using a quad tree or some kind of tree in order to separate, you know, units or rigid bodies in like a physics simulation is a pretty obvious uh, application, but. Even when you're just messing around with arrays and stuff, you can use spatial partitioning to to make things faster. And uh, and so a lot of these patterns that he's talking about in this section are optimization patterns. And uh, and, and in specific, the quad tree, the purpose of that is so that you're not um, comparing every single bounding box to every other single bounding box on the screen. Right. And the basic idea is that you just segment your game world into uh, quads, and each quad can be then be subdivided into quads. And then each entity in your game engine lives in one of those quads. And the basic idea is that when you're doing collision checks, collision checks you only have to look at you know the quad in which an entity exists to see which things it could be colliding with. Hmm. Uh, but you can also use it for like you know data manipulation, like sorting arrays, for example. Like uh, you can, for example, take an array and if it's a sorted array from like say lowest to highest and you have a number that you want to insert into the array, you first check the very middle and you see if the middle is uh, lower or higher. And then you only have to work with either the front or the back part of the array. Right. And so like, I think that that's kind of a, uh, an idea of spatial partitioning as well. You, Interesting. Know, you have the space of the array and you need to put something in it and you can basically cut down the amount of space you have to look at by just cutting in half every single time. And that's kind of how quad trees work too, right? Like the quad tree, the idea is that you just keep subdividing into four. 
Right. You know, so four to four to four to four, and eventually you have like a very small search space. And so when you're searching, you only have to kind of drill down through, you know, upper left quad, lower right quad, lower right quad, lower right quad until you get to this and you eliminate so many other uh, pieces of space you would have to search. You had that uh, new quad tree going in one of your side engines. I did actually. So uh, we talked a little bit about Ocelot um, and then I was working on another engine I called Ahi, uh, which is the Hawaiian name for bluefin tuna. Also on GitHub. I'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah. I think we actually talked about this last episode. I forget. What? The we ca- never do the that. The caffeine has addled my brain. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Come on. Uh, but anyways, yeah, the uh, the approach I took there was that um, I wanted to really get like the core stuff up and running. And to me, a quad tree, especially in a physics collision system, is almost mandatory. Yeah. Um, because it's very, very quick <laughs> that uh, doing comparisons against every object in the scene is going to just blow up. Right. Um, so I, f- I find quad trees to be extremely useful, damn near mandatory when you're talking about arcade games. There was something I saw in the original Spelunky, the one made in Game Maker, where it was like, you know, that kind of optimization thing where um, I think it was off-screen entities don't get ticks. And there was some way that um, that, you know, feature revealed itself kind of in a bug if you moved really quickly or something where it was like, you know, you, you came across an item that should have you know, taking care of itself by now, but then you found it in this weird state because, uh, you know, it was off screen, not ticking. We kind of have that in uh, a wizard lizard actually, where like, <clears throat> let's say you kill the monsters in a room and the, you know, you want to go North out of a door and the door opens when you see it because like it would want to open when you first killed all the monsters, but it wasn't visible. And then when the view comes into view, <laughs> right? Like Sprite comes into view, I should say it, that's when it finally starts getting ticks again. And then it opens. Cause it was like, that's what it was supposed to have done a while ago, but it didn't. Yeah. I think in that so, like, particular case, what you need to do is we need to make it so that if it's off screen, the animation just completes right away. So instead of saying animate yeah. from close to open, it says, you know, Hey, you're off screen. Just open. Yeah. We, God, I've already had that code too. There's remember that uh, log we had everywhere. And it was like animation completing because tween is not visible. Right. Yeah, we've already got that kind of feature. We might just need to like tie it together. Right. Interesting. So, anyways, yeah, the spatial partitioning is a is a big thing. Um, it's not even just useful for collisions. It's useful for almost any any kind of entity lookup. Um, if you wanted to say like, you know. Uh, this entity wants to know uh, which entities are within, you know, X amount of distance of their center. Right. And so you can use the same quad tree to grab all the entities that exist within that quadrant and see how many of them are actually within, you know, some radius uh, of the player or whatever, whatever it happens to be. Nice. So there's lots and lots of stuff you can do with that. Um, there are other uh, patterns and other tools besides quad trees that, uh, that handle that stuff. Um the thing with quad trees, I guess, is that uh, they have been the most useful for me. So that's kind of like my de facto example of spatial partitioning. Right. Um, but I do know that there are quite a few. I mean, there's binary trees. There are oct trees. Uh, <laughs> and so all kinds, of, uh, all kinds of stuff. Nice. I think I'll talk more about some of these other stuff later, like uh, object pooling and dirty flags, which we actually use those two quite a bit. And then the data locality stuff, um, just briefly, is the idea of like lining up your components so that they're accessed in sequence. Like instead of saying, you know, for each entity, iterate over each component. And so it'd be like entity one, 
you know, transform physics script render. Entity two, transform, you know, script, whatever, physics script. Um, the idea is that you basically bucket all of the components for each entities into their respective buckets. So you might have one bucket for all the physics components. And uh, then you would just say, okay, I'm going to iterate through all the physics components of all the entities and do those all in one fell swoop. And then move on to the script component of all the entities and then do those all in one fell swoop. Gotcha. Anyways, I can maybe talk more about that later, but uh, the optimization patterns are something that I'm pretty interested in because uh, they're one of those things that you kind of end up having to use in a lot of cases when your game gets to a certain scale uh, for optimization. And it's just one of those things I find really interesting. You do. You love your optimization. I do. It kind of pairs well with uh, my desire to add particles everywhere. <laughs> right. And to use dolls with eight limbs and just basically to do very unoptimized things. So those those jive. You do make my life objectively harder. <laughs> <laughs> Mission accomplished. Uh, anyway, I think that's all we have for this week. Um, we'll talk more about design patterns next week. Matt might have another art tip. I do. I got at least one more. God, you're such a liar. They might just keep going. And maybe we'll answer the burning question about, you know, RPG Maker and Pixie. Yes. <laughs> Although I like that. Uh, feel free to tweet at us with the lost tag, lost cast hashtag. Uh, yeah. And we will, uh, you know, always looking for, you know, tidbits of stuff that we can talk about on the cast. Uh, so oh, we got a question uh, from uh, Dan as well uh, about uh, development timeline, which is, that's uh, something very important for games. We should talk about that too. Sure. Should we talk about it now or later? We are way over podcast time here, sir. Whoa, 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 okay. All right, next week we'll talk about ADWL timelines. ADWL 2 timelines, I'm sorry. So, uh, as always, thanks for listening and uh, join us on the forum at forum.losttickedgames.com. Two of my favorite things in this world are video games and music. And one of my favorite video game franchises is Castlevania. And one of my favorite musicians is Joshua Morse. So I'm obviously very excited about Vlad 2 being out right now which you should totally go pick up. It's four really awesome tracks. I'm a big fan of like electronic music and, you know, stuff you can kind of like, you can feel the beat, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And um, this song we're going to play you out with is called Hallway to Hell. It's from Vlad 2. So go check it out. Go buy it. Help out Joshua Morris. And while you're there, check out my pixel art. I did the album cover for this one. So uh, feast your eyes, feast your ears. Uh, do check it out and hope you like the song. Ship it.
Liar. Liar.